0: Welcome to the new Books in Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Christopher Baylor, who is the author of First to the Party: The Group Origins of Political Transformation. The book is published in th- two thousand and seventeen by Penn press. Uh, Christopher Baylor is the author, and he's with me today chris how are you doing I'm great. thanks for having me Heath yeah it was it's um I really enjoyed the book and have been looking forward to our conversation. Um, and, and also so glad that you, um, you are a listener of the podcast as well. Uh, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, where you're affiliated now and and maybe where you've been in the past. So, uh, share a little bit with us.
1: I grew up in a blue collar town in Massachusetts called Brockton. And I went to college in Pennsylvania at Muhlenberg college, went to graduate school at UCLA, where I worked with John Zoller. And currently, I am an American Political Science Association Congressional Fellow, so I'll be working in Washington, D.C. for a year.
0: Yeah, uh, wonderful. It's, um, the, the book is ways um, is, uh, into the general debate about political parties, but the more specific question uh, you ask is what happens when parties are transformed? Uh, what are the types of party transformations that so interest you in the book, and and why is why is it that interest groups feature so strongly in your accounting of this?
1: Well, I'm interested in political part, political party transformations where the direction of a party is contested, where there are office holders who vie for a different direction for the party, and interest groups who want a different direction than office holders. And I guess the reason that interests me. Is it speaks a lot to party representation by seeing whether it's really office holders or voters or interest groups. We can see whose policy positions are really interested in, are really represented in political parties.
0: Now, the book follows along uh, two parallel paths, not parallel uh, uh, chronologically, but but parallel in terms of their what the story is that they tell. Um, I wonder briefly, uh, would you tell us about the two cases, uh, why you chose them, and and then we can later uh, get to the details of each. But, But why the two stories that you tell in the book?
1: Well, I think that civil rights and Christian conservatives are the sort of largest, they represent the largest cluster of issue positions where parties have changed since the New Deal. The two parties have had the same relative economic orientation issue position orientations since then. But they've changed on social issues, as I argue. The Democratic Party in the 1930s was not especially eager to spread the New Deal benefits to blacks because that would alienate their southern wing. And then in the 1970s, the Republican Party office holders really did not see the potential of the Christian right. And it was a group of people who had different Socioeconomic and religious backgrounds, and they weren't really welcome to eager well to have a new group in the party that might upset the existing relationships that officeholders had with their constituents and interest groups. So I view them as really the the momentous changes
0: since the New Deal. Yeah, and towards the end of the book, you you raise a couple of other smaller uh, case studies, but but those two cases really make up the bulk. Uh, of the book and and why don 't we start with the civil rights case? You allude kind of briefly here to to the timing of this, but how far back do you go to tell the story of the transformation of the Demo- Democratic Party as it relates to civil rights and and why start at that point and, and not at another point?
1: Well, I do briefly go into civil rights in the early twentieth century to explain the origins of the NAACP, which I view as the most prestigious voice of civil rights in the 1940s and probably the most influential of the civil rights groups that were active in party coalitions. And I I start before the New Deal just to show that civil rights groups were being ignored by both major parties, and this led them to look for strategies to get more access to politics. Until recently, a lot of people located the civil rights transformation of the Democratic Party in the 1960s with the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and while that certainly was a landmark piece of legislation, the groundwork for all of this was built in the 1940s. I argue that it's in the 40s where civil rights groups work together with unions, and a broad coalition of unions, liberal groups, and civil rights groups work together to change the agenda of the Democratic Party. And by that decade, most northern Democrats do support that agenda, partly as a result of the pressure that's being placed on them by these interest groups. And it's the interest groups who managed to pass an ambitious civil rights plank in the 1948 convention against the wishes of a sitting Democratic president the Democratic majority leaders in both the
0: House and the Senate, and the Democratic Party chair at the time. Now, what is it that the NAACP, the the interest group that you argue is is the most uh, influential during this period? What are they doing that that either other interest groups are not doing, or or that other groups are not doing, maybe in the same effective way? So, why does the NAACP? Why are they able to uh, transform the party? Uh, in a way that uh, it hadn't been transformed prior to. So talk a little bit about strategies and tactics.
1: Well, what they do is they form a constructive relationship with the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which by the 40s was becoming a juggernaut in the Democratic Party. And by working constructively, they prevent civil rights from being a, a wedge issue, um among union workers. We saw both in the past and in the future that um, white workers could be turned against civil rights groups when the civil rights groups were not being sensitive to labor interests. Paul Freimer shows that in his book um, on on civil rights groups and unions. And of course, until the 1940s or so, African Americans often served as strike breakers. They were excluded from white unions and so when white workers went on strike you would have companies hire black replacement workers or sometimes hire um, uh, African-Americans to break up the strike and the NAACP and other organizations could hardly blame them for doing so when they weren't offered jobs in the union and they had a hard time getting other jobs. But beginning in the 1940s, the the NAACP urges black workers to stop doing that, to join unions and to uh, be members in good standing. And they worked together with the CIO on a lot of their social welfare legislation as well. In the 1930s, the NAACP would sometimes oppose social welfare legislation, if it did not have an anti-discrimination provision for example social security but in the nineteen forties they realized that doing that will alienate them from other groups in the liberal coalition because like it or not that means that this social welfare legislation like aid to education is never going to get passed in Congress so the the NAACP is willing to set aside its short-term interests in order to form a long-term alliance that will give them more access to the party i'll add that part of the reason they the cio is interested in them is that they're more effective than some other civil rights groups they they are successful at some lawsuits for example invalidating the white primary and they probably did more than any other civil rights group to register black voters in the south in the 1940s as well as uh, help them with their own recruitment drives
0: now, you also study the Christian conservative movement. Um, now, th- today, it seems common to think about the marriage between conservative Christians and the Republican Party as long longstanding and, and even inevitable. But you show that the arrangement is much more recent and also not necessarily fated to be, maybe in the way that we kind of uh, commonly understand it. When does this part of your story begin? And what are the groups that feature most prominently in its telling?
1: Well, there are a number of conservative Protestant denominations, theologically conservative Protestant denominations, that before and during the 1960s didn't get along very well at all. The Pentecostal churches and the holiness churches were rivals. Uh, The Southern Baptist Convention um, at the time was actually pro-choice and against school prayer. There were the Mormons and the Catholics, and both both of them were viewed as heretics or or worse by evangelicals and fundamentalists. And there's a distinction even between the evangelicals and the fundamentalists, where the fundamentalists both insist on biblical inerrancy, but the fun- but the fundamentalists sharply criticize the evangelicals for being willing to work with uh, with Pentecostals. I'll note also uh, Axel Schaefer has a book showing that there was the potential for a religious left in the 1960s. Most of the Catholic publications at the time, except for the the National Review, if you want to call it that, were on the left, and denominations such as uh, the Southern Baptist Convention or organizations like the National Association of Evangelicals, there were strong liberal factions in both of them. So yes, I, I argue that the Christian right might've never came to be. There were a bunch of disparate groups that historically hadn't got along together. And within each of these groups, there was a religious left faction.
0: So is the, is the story of, of the democratic party, um, pushing them away or does the Republican party and it's, um, uh, elites pull, pull this group into the, into the party? What's, what, what changes, uh, uh, in the 1970s and eighties that, that, leads to the transformation you study
1: well there of course the big factor is the cultural changes of the 1960s which does lead a faction within each of these religious groups to become more conservative politically cultural changes like like abortion and the rise of secular humanism there's one uh, writer in particular Francis Schaeffer um, who would Entertain intellectuals at his retreat in Switzerland and talk to them about theological and political issues he toured the United States and Convinced tr- tried to convince Protestants That abortion was not simply a Catholic issue that this is a step on the road of self to secular humanism where religious values were well where values were divorced from religion and so he he created a following in many of these denominations and organizations and they may, they managed to take control now at the same time there were a group of disgruntled republican off operatives called the new right they were all they all managed their own advocacy groups think tanks or direct mailing companies and they were very upset about the rockefeller wing of the republican party they wanted to purge that wing and they but they needed more people they had money and they had media savvy but they didn't have A lot of volunteers that you needed for campaigns. And so they thought that uh, theologically conservative churches were a repository of voters or potential voters. A lot of them had not registered to vote. And so they approached religious broadcasters for an alliance. And they convinced religious broadcasters that politicizing their broadcast would raise money for their ministries. And so their most significant find was Jerry Falwell, who was also a a follower of Francis Schaeffer, and so they got him to create the interest group, The Moral Majority. But he he was interested in politics, but he was also interested in creating Liberty University and other leaders like Pat Robertson wanted to create their own universities and their own missions abroad. And and they viewed politics and patriotism as a way of expanding their audiences. And I'm not sure that they they were right. but the, the point is that the new right and other people convinced them that it was the way to do it.
0: And, and so um, you write towards, towards the end of the book, and I'll quote, the differences between civil rights and cultural conservatives was more one of technique than one of substance. Um, how so? Uh, what do you mean by this, uh, this, this statement, which, which seems to set up the comparison between the two cases that you developed? So, so far, we've been talking,
1: focusing on one claim of the book, which is that groups need to work together in a coalition to change a political party. And we've been talking about the origins of that, of these coalitions. Another claim of the book is that the way that they change parties is becoming, is by becoming active in party nominations. And that's true for both the Christian right case and the civil rights case that they changed the Democratic and the Republican Party by being active in nominations. And so that quote is about the technique of how to change parties through nominations. It is about the the civil rights coalition, including the, the CIO, had to become active in party conventions. This was pre-McGovern Frazier at a time when Delegates at conventions selected party nominees and platforms, and so that's how the CIO and the NAACP and their allies changed the Democratic Party at the time. After McGovern-Fraser, after 1972, the way that you you change a party nomination has to be to become involved in binding caucuses and primaries. So instead of electing delegates to the convention, you have to find a way to change what the voters are voting for in caucuses and primaries. So those are two very different techniques, but the 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 key insight is what Schatzneider said, that he who controls the nominations owns the party, that whatever mechanism the party uses to nominate, these outside groups need to master that mechanism in order to take the party in a new direction.
0: Now, this book is is in many ways in conversation with the seminal book, uh, "The Party Decides." I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, how complementary your argument and your findings are with with the thesis of that book, and and where the differences appear. What where where the difference in focusing here on uh, the group origins of of uh, political parties might differ from the conclusions they reach?
1: Sure. So the party decides and first to the party are very much alike in attributing party change to the politics of nominations. One difference is that I draw a sharper contrast between these kind of outside groups in the party and the party itself. I define the party as formal party organizations and office holders where they extend the definition of a party to include what they call the intense policy demanders. And maybe for For some purposes, encompassing them all under the label of political parties is appropriate. But when you're trying to uncover the origins of transformation, I think it's important to draw a sharper distinction between the office holders who are members of a party and these kind of outside groups like the new right, the NAACP and the CIO who are trying to change a party because they face fundamentally different incentives. Uh, the politicians generally want to get as many votes as possible, which means that if there are two factions competing for the direction of a party, they want to straddle them as much as they can to try to keep them all under the same umbrella, whereas outside groups who want to transform a party usually want to marginalize the influence of a group that is already in the party, such as white Southerners or, or Rockefeller or Republicans in the case – of the new right. So another thing is they focus on the importance of endorsements. And without taking, I I don't disagree on that, but where I disagree is when office holders endorse different people than these outside groups. So in recent elections, you've seen, for example, Republican candidates for office that get endorsements from office holders, but, but their rivals might get endorsements from Tea Party groups or Christian right groups. And so sometimes the outside groups and the office holders completely disagree, like as in the example of Ted Cruz or, uh, or Roy Moore. And so what I'm interested in seeing is when these outside groups disagree with the office holders, then who prevails and Why?
0: you finish the book with some comments on the Trump victory. You, you write that Trump's domination does not undermine the claim that cultural conservatives change the direction of the Republican Party. Uh, in conclusion, why not? Well, even Donald Trump, with his history of being pro-choice
1: and generally not too worried about cultural degeneration, had to toe the line with the Christian right on their most important issues like uh, abortion and transgendered bathrooms and that kind of that kind of thing. He backed down. He even met with leaders of the Christian right such as jo- James Dobson and and tried to convince them that he was taking steps in their direction. And, and James Dobson had you know said that he was taking baby steps and so forth. So the the Christian right certainly hasn't been able to adopt its the candidate closest to its position in every case but they have placed boundaries on where the nominees stand and Donald Trump is an example of that i think if Donald Trump were just going on his own private beliefs he he would be pro choice and maybe a good example of this is Rudy Giuliani he had poll numbers and um and fundraising in 2007 that Candidates and other contests could only dream of, and yet he was unable to get the Christian right volunteers to get his campaign off the ground.
0: The book, again, is First to the Party, The Group Origins of Political Transformation. Uh, The author is Christopher Baylor, who you've been uh, listening to, and the publisher is Penn Press. Chris, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.